Daniel uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 29. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his seat in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire not harm their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. We're in the book of Daniel for five weeks. We're doing something we don't normally do, which is to kind of gut a book because we want to think about some of the messages that our culture are telling us are the most important that are worth bowing before. Um, and so we're thinking about that with the help of 
the prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel was written 600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's a book that's set in two places, Jerusalem, but also in a faraway land on the map you can see in Babylon. And what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar twice came against God's city, which is the city of Jerusalem. And uh, once he took away 10,000 of the leading military uh, artists, uh, singers, songwriters, cultural influencers, politicians, the cream of the crop he took away and they were led uh, 10,000 of them away from their homeland of Jerusalem, part of Israel, over to uh, Babylon. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's great master plan as a superpower of the day. He wanted to conquer by assimilating, keyword, assimilating, treating people like a sponge, Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his three friends and the remaining of the 10,000 were taught the language of a foreign country. They were taught the religious principles. They were given the food um, and they were given new names. We thought about how significant that was last week. And by the time we get to our chapter today, we're thinking more about how hard it is to stand for Jesus in a foreign land, whether that's in Babylon or whether that's in Greater London. It's a very famous passage that you would have been taught if you went to Sunday school, if you've grown up in a Christian home, or even if you become a Christian in later life. I bet you've heard about Daniel and the fiery furnace. Well, Daniel's actually not in the fiery furnace, but that's a mute point. He's in the lion's den a bit later on, but his friends are today. And we're going to see a lot about the pressure there was and there is to bow before the gods of pluralism. We're going to see about the confidence that true faith exhibits. We see that in a very real way in this passage. And the promises that if you stand up for Jesus, you will suffer. Okay, interesting passage. The pressure of pluralism. Look at this first part of the chapter, Daniel chapter three with me, please. The first part of the chapter, we're, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar gets into building. Last week in Daniel chapter 2, he had a dream, a dream of a, a multi-metallic uh, person, a statue that was representative of kings and kingdoms. And this puny looking little uh, pebble, this rock grew into a great mountain. It was a, a symbol of the kingdom of God outlasting all the kings and rulers and kingdoms of the world. This week, Nebuchadnezzar gets building. It's not a dream. He gets his hand dirty or his builder's hands get dirty and he builds this whopping obelisk that's 30 metres tall, three metres wide. So we're talking a, an object covered in gold on the plain of Jura where everybody can see it and it's surrounded with an orchestra. So anyone who heard the music and could see the image were called by royal decree on pain of death to bow down to the object that King Nebuchadnezzar had constructed. And Shadrach Meshach and Abednego refused to do it. Bow or burn would be a way that you could teach this passage to young people. Look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar hears that these three courageous men refuse to do what he's commanded. And Daniel chapter 3 verse 14 says this. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or, or by, by worshipping the image of gold I've set up. I think it's fair to say that uh, this image that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar constructed is representative of the society that he's trying to uh, create. It's a multi-ethnic society. 
It's a multinational society. People from lots of different tribes and nations that he has conquered, brought to Babylon, taught all the uh, aspects of Babylonian society to conform them to the image of the Babylonian Empire. So there are many people in Babylon from different lands with different tongues and different clothes and traditions. And they also had different gods. But by setting up this huge object, this golden obelisk, is that okay there, uh, off the end, King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you can keep your religion private. But when you hear the orchestra play, when you hear the bagpipes, there's obviously some Scots in uh, Babylon, <laughs> when you hear the bagpipes playing, you are to bow before my God. You can keep your God and your practices private, but in terms of public religion, this is the public religion that I want you to bow before and to worship. I want you to worship my God in addition to your God. It's the way that all great pluralistic societies function, whether it's in Babylon, Benidorm, Boston, London, any other words that begin with L or B. Every pluralistic society says you can keep your religion private, but there is a state-run religion, and that's a religion that you must bow before. And if you don't bow, you will burn in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, or you will burn, in the modern context, in the courts of public opinion. Pluralistic societies always say bow or burn. Now, there are many examples of this in the modern world. The easiest one to see is about an object that's been made into a trademark symbol for a movement, and it's the rainbow. Here are images of a rainbow that's been projected on football stadium that has been used to sell phones and computers. It has something to do with banking. It has something to do with food and clothing. It has to do with where you buy your groceries. And just like the angel of death going over uh, Egypt in the Old Testament, Dave shared with me recently how he had someone liken the rainbow to Passover in the Old Testament. If the blood was on your doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over and you would be safe. But imagine now if you own a business or if you work for a company and you refuse to have the rainbow at Costa Coffee or at Vodafone, or at Tesco's, or at Asda, or at Sainsbury's, or wherever you buy your food or electric goods. If you do not bow before the rainbow, then the judgment of the collective masses will fall upon you. Bowing to the rainbow, the symbol of peace in the Bible, is now a key issue for Christians to wrestle with. It's not easy. It is difficult. It will come at a great cost if you say yes to Jesus, yes to obedience and no to bowing before the rainbow and all that that entails. You can bow your head or you can bend your knee in the modern world. But Christians at the time of Babylon and the time of in greater London, the rainbow being used and weaponised, you could say, for the LGBTQ plus movement is a great challenge for Christians to face. Because our society is saying, you can believe what you want in private, but in public, you must affirm identity. You must affirm sexuality. You must affirm the rights of people. 
And it's a complex issue that sound bites will not answer. A lot of listening needs to be done, but also truth needs to be shared with courage and wisdom and love and sensitivity. And it's so hard, isn't it? We come as Bible-believing Christians before the Lord on a Sunday morning. We seek to listen to good things. We seek to read good material. We seek to understand the Bible. But the pressure is overwhelming in our culture that, uh, that forms the vast part of our diary and of our week. Because the Bible says this about sexuality and identity, and our culture says that. And it's very easy to say no to Jesus and yes to the culture. We count the cost every single day, don't we? And sometimes the cost of standing for Jesus appears far too great. And so it's easier to bow or to mumble or to affirm things that we shouldn't. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had absolutely none of it in Daniel chapter 3. And I just want to ask you a question. With these complex issues that are costly to stand for Jesus... Have you compromised or have you in God's strength been able to stand? The pressure to bow in a pluralistic society to keep your religion private is almost overpowering. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say it's not. You can stand in God's strength. You can have confidence that true faith will give you a resolve to not bow, but to stand. Let's look at that. The confidence that you get from true faith. The second point. This uh, word standing comes up a lot in Daniel. This is a bit of a revelation from a man called James Jordan that's written a super commentary on the book of Daniel for me. The the word uh, stand has more to do with you getting out of bed in the morning or to stand uh, in a train to give someone your seat. It's there three times. Standing has to do with uh, who's in charge. It depicts rule and reign. It's there three times in chapter one about Daniel who would stand before the king. It's there six times in chapter two, mainly positively about God who causes rulers and kings to stand and brings them to something and can bring them to nothing. But by the time you get to chapter three, this word stand appears 11 times. And it's Nebuchadnezzar nine of those 11 times who causes an image to stand. He uh, causes an image to be built up on the plain of Jura and people to fall before. This image of standing and falling is very important. In chapter 3, it's standing in terms of false worship. But the chapter focuses in on the God who Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have real confidence in. And we need to be careful. Who are these guys? Are these people who are kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger of faith? Were they great men of strength and courage? I don't think they were, but they had confidence in a great, strong God. They're not people who have withdrawn from the world to kind of create a Christian enclave. They're not people who are so frustrated with the fact that they can't worship the true God in public that they get angry and they get belligerent. They're not like that. These are people, chapter one, who have been trained and schooled in the things of Babylonian culture and they work in the civil service they work before the king they've got good well-paid so to speak jobs they're deeply engaged and enmeshed in a foreign culture in a foreign society standing for Jesus like Daniel in chapter one they are absolutely resolute they are determined they resolved 
to not bow before the gods of Babylon, but to stand for King Jesus. And this makes Nebuchadnezzar very angry. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. Nebuchadnezzar is incandescent, but look at what these men say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Now, that is a remarkable statement. Let me tell you why. We believe our God is able to save us. He can save us and rescue us from your hand. But not only that, look at what that means. He says, we believe he will save us from your hands, but literally, but if not, our God can save us, O King. We think he will save us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow before you, King Nebuchadnezzar. They're saying, unlike I do, perhaps unlike you do, God, I will follow you if. God, I will follow you when. God, I will worship you if only you will. There's none of that in the vocabulary of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They simply say with this wonderful declaration, God, we want you more than anything. And we will not bow before foreign gods, even unto death. We love you just for who you are, not for what you will do for us. We want you to save us, but even if you don't, we will still worship you and we still refuse to bow and we'll go even unto death. We put our life in your hands. We obey you just because of who you are. We trust you and we serve you and we love you for you. And we don't need you to prove yourself to us by saving us even from an untimely and a gruesome death. That's the confidence that they have in the God in whom they worship and whom they serve. And it's seen in the actions in their lives. They can see that uh, God can, he can rescue them from certain death. But he will always rescue the believer through death. So death is no longer to be feared. He could save them from the fiery furnace, but he would always save them through death as they look forward to Jesus. When people are big, God is small and we will bow before the court of public opinion. But when God is big, people are then small. And like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we can stand for him no matter what the cost And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have such a great God-centred view that they refuse to bow and they, with confidence and faith in God, they stand in the most hostile of environments. But what happens next is shocking and surprising. The promise of suffering, the pressure to bow, the confidence of faith and the promise of suffering. So Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He's white hot. The temperature is not increasing gradually. It's whacked up to the max. And so he wants the furnace to be as hot as his own anger in his own heart. Filled with fury, verse 19. And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are bound, turbaned, cloaked and led into this fiery furnace that is so hot. This always gets me. The soldiers who have to put more fuel on the fire lose their lives. 
It's that hot. Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he's rubbing his hands. Maybe he's just spitting blood and teeth. He uh, retreats to the vantage point where he can see what will happen. And here are the two shocking things that he sees. First of all, three people are just walking around. They're just walking around as if uh, it's just a really hot furnace-like day like we've had a week of. The soldiers died getting near, but they're walking around unbound from their chains and unconcerned about the fire. The second surprise, of course, is that when he scratches his head to say, hang on, I put three people in there and now I see four. The fourth, verse 25, looks like a son of the gods. And they're saved after all, they're rescued by God. The pressure to bow, the reality of confidence in God, the reality of faith, it's very precise, it's pressure and it's precise, precise confidence. And then it's the the reality of suffering. The Bible speaks of suffering in every book because it's real. And this uh, passage has something to say about suffering to us in our modern world, because if we refuse to bow, we will suffer. If we count the cost and we stand for Jesus, it will mean a life of difficulty and untold cost, but it will be worth it. And this, uh, metaphorically speaking, this image of a furnace is used throughout the Bible to describe the reality of suffering. So suffering in the Bible, it says that suffering is inevitable. You can look at Job, you could perhaps look at 1 Peter 4. Suffering is inevitable. Peter writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. The Bible says in a fallen world, because of our sin, Genesis chapter 3, suffering is inevitable. So don't be surprised. Be prepared. Be equipped. Be ready to face suffering and difficulty in a sin-sick world. But then there's another reality here as well. It says that the second thing the Bible promises about suffering is it's shown here. Suffering can be used by God to refine your character as gold is refined in the furnace of fire. So 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 6, for a little while you've had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So just as uh, gold is refined by the heat of a furnace, so too your faith can be refined and should be refined in the furnace of suffering. It's an intense time in your life when you experience suffering and difficulty. And the key for suffering to not harden your heart, to not crush you like clay, is for you to recognise the reality that three people went into the furnace, but there's a fourth that appears in the midst of suffering. If you will not be crushed by the furnace of suffering. You need to understand, but also experience the person who came into the suffering furnace. Isaiah 43. Fear not, says God, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be there. I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God, and I will be with you. What's the message of Ephesians? The gospel has all the resources you need to stand for Jesus. But Paul says, I want you to know, and this is not understanding. I want you to experience by the Spirit of God 
the goodness of God and the power of God. I want you to be transformed so that you can stand on a daily basis. And Daniel's just the same. I want you to know the goodness of God and I want you to understand the reality of God so that when you're tempted to bow, you can stand because God is with you in the midst of the furnace of suffering. So God is not just generally in charge. He's present with his people. Look at verse 25. These two key sentences, verse 25, and also a little bit later on in verse 28. Who is this person, this fourth mysterious character in the furnace? Nebuchadnezzar, verse 25, says he looks like a son of the gods. Then he speaks about this character a second time, verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel. Now, that's an interesting phrase. In the Old Testament, there are angels, God's ministering servants who are sent to minister and speak to his people. When God sends an angel like the angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel does not speak on his own authority. He says, God says this. But when you have in the Old Testament, the the angel of the Lord, like in the book of Exodus, like in Gideon chapter five, are you for me or are you against me? He says to this mysterious warrior. He doesn't say, here's what God says. He speaks on behalf of God as if he were God. Because I think the Old Testament teaches quite clearly that when God appears in these ways, in the book of Exodus, in uh, Judges chapter 5, in the book of Daniel chapter 3, it's God in a localised form. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who's present with his people in the Old Testament. It's God in visible form. God saying, I'm with you in the furnace. I will not desert you. The flame will not light or kindle upon you. In other words, I'm not talking about endurance from afar. I'm with you in the suffering. I'm with you in the pain. I'm with you in the loss. And to the degree that you understand that God has entered into time and history as the incarnate Jesus Christ, who took the ultimate furnace for you, that means that you'll be able to stand in the smaller furnaces that God leads you into. Do you get that? If you remember that Jesus Christ in the gospel was sent into the ultimate furnace of the wrath of God because you or I do not love our neighbour as we should. We don't serve God as we should. We set our hearts to lots of different things. And yet God was willing to send his son into captivity, as it were, and into the furnace of the wrath of God that's due to my sin and your sin. And he took our place and our punishment in the ultimate furnace, which means that we can stand in little furnaces that he causes us to be led into, to refine us like fire and like gold. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and experienced all that we deserved so that we receive all that he deserves. And at the end of this passage in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar speaks prophetically. Did you notice that? Verse 29. Nebuchadnezzar says, no God or which God can save like this? And the answer is none. No God can save in this way. You might stay at a Devere hotel and you'll see these two options. Do you want your... uh, Bedroom clean, or would you rather just be left alone for a lie-in? I'm clean enough already. No, I'm a right mess. Come on in and sort me out. That's the way religion works, isn't it? 
Religion says, I'm okay. I'm clean enough. Please don't disturb me. I've done enough to stand before you. And the gospel says, I'm an absolute mess. Please come in and give me new life. When suffering comes, if you operate like the red tag, you will struggle in unknown ways. If you think you've lived a good enough life, you're either going to hate God when suffering comes, or you're going to say, this isn't what I deserve, it's not what I've earned, and that will lead you into despair. Or you can think, I haven't lived a good enough life, and you still end up in despair. But when you see that God entered into the furnace for you, when you see that uh, it's not about effort and it's not about performance, but it's about receiving the good gift that God has sent us in his son. It's about forgiveness and grace and acceptance. When suffering comes, you'll see that God leads you into suffering, the Bible teaches, but he also presents himself with you in the midst of suffering. So you don't need to be mad at God. You don't need to be angry at yourself for not doing enough. But in the furnace, you can say, if God did not desert me in the ultimate furnace of the wrath of God that I deserved, he will not desert me in this smaller furnace, which means I can stand and I walk with him. He's with me in this moment. Nebuchadnezzar was right. There is great pressure to bow. There's great confidence that we can have in our God who's strong and mighty. But there is no God who can save us like our God. And so will you bow or will you in God's strength, like the book of Ephesians says, will you stand in the strength of the Lord? Ephesians 6, chapter 1.